0: Welcome back to A Plot Upon a Hill. We are going over the 8-3 notes. We're going to focus on domestic policy today. And one of the things we're going to start with is the 1960 election. All right, so we have Richard Nixon, Vice President for Eisenhower, running against JFK. And the interesting thing is the Democrats are very divided. There's a lot of internal squabbles. There's a lot of issues going on. We have the progressive wing in the party supporting Hubert Humphrey, a very traditional New Deal liberal. okay, And um, JFK, a Northeast liberal. Then you have the conservatives supporting LBJ, Lyndon Johnson, who's from Texas. And eventually, when JFK wins the nomination, he is forced into uh, choosing LBJ because you need to unite the party from the north to the south, all right? LBJ's and from Texas. You get the Dixiecrat vote from the south, and that's crucial to possibly winning the general election.
1: And really, the, the, the big ideological fraction that is is happening within the, uh, the Democratic Party is largely over race. Mm -hmm. And that's something to be to have. And of course, it's over federal government, the expansion of federal government. You have the liberal Democrats that are more open to the expansion of New Deal policies uh, under the leadership of the federal government, and you also have your, you know, your typical Confederate state rights Democrats. However, a big issue that will continue to drive a wedge between this party well up into the 1970s is the issue of race. So please keep this in mind and we will make note of this as we talk later on in this podcast about the race riots in 1968.
0: And LBJ mentions that later on in the mid-60s when LBJ says he's going to lose the South for the next generation. Um, Now, when we talk about the campaign itself, television plays a major role in influencing people's decision to vote for Kennedy. All right? And um, we both mentioned this in class about how the first televised debates in the history of our country take place in this uh, election and people that listen to it at home they thought Nixon won, okay? People that listened to it on the radio, excuse me. And those who watched it on television overwhelmingly thought Kennedy won because of his dynamicism in terms of his ability to move around, interact with the audience, but also he just looked a lot better and Nixon looked like
1: he had a long, tough day at work. And keep this in mind, although it's not probably going to start immediately, the fact that optics plays a huge role in politics, now politicians are going to worry less about what they are saying mm. and their policy. You're not going to have as many policy walks. Mm. You're going to have more people be more concerned about how their hair looks.
0: Mm. Presentation matters, optics matter. Just like we said about containment and the old, overall, overall about the Cold War issues, how people perceive things matters. And now, someone who looks like a leader is almost more important than someone who acts like a leader. Excellent. Okay. Now, um, the election very close. We talked about the you know, ghost votes or the um, people that happen to be uh, no longer with us that happened to vote that day in Chicago, and the connections between Mayor Daley and um, Joe Kennedy, his father, JFK's father. But um, very close election, 100,000 vote difference in the popular majority, in the popular vote, excuse me. And then a slight margin in the electoral vote to give Kennedy the uh, presidency in 1961 he's inaugurated and And that brings us to his domestic policy
1: and he's gonna hit the ground running i mean that being the youngest president at 43 he's going to launch what he would call the new frontier program and if you think about it it's very similar to other type of legislative agendas that we've seen with democrats in the past so we had the fair deal with truman Mm -hmm. we had the new deal with fdr square deal with Roosevelt. you could even say new freedom if you want to go as far back with wilson so you know just keep in mind that these are different ways of marketing pretty much the same thing. We want the federal government to expand the role to help people in need. So we're talking about federal aid to education, supporting civil rights legislation with the teeth and the enforcement of the federal government. Uh, More support for health care or offering nationalized health care, which is a debate that started in the 40s. Urban renewal, meaning developing housing for people that need it during this time. And of course, um, other issues involving people of color. Now, most of these programs are not going to be able to pass, and Johnson will take over the presidency and pass some of them through his new, you know, fancy wording great society campaign. The reason why JFK was assassinated and he wasn't able to kind of lower pressure, 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 it's interesting. We've noted this since Teddy Roosevelt. You should keep this in mind. Uh, now presidents are no longer just simply taking the laws that the Congress is passing, but they're utilizing their position, known as the bully pulpit, right, to kind of push for a legislative agenda. No, So it's kind of, again, using your platform to push for these agendas. At this point, the the, the, the electorate is expecting the president to, to offer some sort of menu on the next four years of the election.
0: And that brings us really to um, one of the things that Kennedy's... Um Put into the position of responding to the issues of school desegregation, just like Eisenhower was. So, states' rights versus federal oversight, right? And you know, we desegregate public schools, but we don't find any um, African Americans to attend any higher levels of education, university level, until 1962 with James Meredith. Okay, so he's a black Air Force veteran, and he's attempting to enroll in uh, enroll in the United University of Mississippi. Okay. Um, Huge mob is gathered there to prevent him from doing this, from registering. And the federal government and JFK is forced in to do this. He is forced to send in 400 federal marshals and 3,000 troops just to protect his right to an education. All right, this is something, once again, the state's rights, uh, federal government argument, the tussle here of who has supremacy, the federal government has to step in. and protect the rights of this individual because of the 14th. And this
1: will happen again in 1963 when Governor George Wallace you should kind of keep him in mind because he's going to play a big part in future elections. He's going to be I would say, um, one of the more famous populist leaders of the 20th century. The other one in which, if you remember, William Jennings Bryan, but this is here, neither here nor here, uh, a strict segregationist. He's going to actively defy, as the governor of Alabama, the same idea, an entry of a black student to enter in the University of Alabama. JFK will respond in, in kind, as he did in the year before, with troops to protect the black yeah, right to can't education. They can tell us,
0: you know, the, those people in Washington can't tell us how to live down here in Alabama. That's their defense. Right. and that that is why we have to address shortly there's not much else domestically that happens until December of 1960 excuse me November of 1963.
1: Yeah unfortunately um, you know despite some of his support um, initial support with the civil rights movement of course uh, being in some sort of tertiary contact with MLK and his kind of leadership team, he's going to obviously not be able to extend this further when he's assassinated in November 22nd.
0: Lee Harvey Oswald is found as the culprit He's shooting him shooting him from the Book Depository in a, Dallas.
1: A team of um, officials known as, together, collectively known as the Warrant Commission, will uh, be established to investigate this assassination. And And the, the problem is the report that they come up with indicates a little bit of a tampering of the evidence, and it's going to undermine the credibility of the United States government. Typically, when a crime is committed, you're not supposed to touch evidence that is like Detective 101. I mean, if you look at the Pink Panther TV shows, if you look at any type of CSI TV shows, that's probably more of a better better illusion. Um, You know, you're not tampering with any of the evidence, but the Warren Commission reported that there was such tampering. So it's going to lend itself, this type of like weird gray area of what exactly occurred will lend itself to a a litany of different conspiracy theorists, ranging from the Soviets all the way up to LBJ himself. And
0: some of it, you can even see this year, uh, our president released some of the... uh, some of the positions in this report that were redacted there are a lot of things in the files that we would uh, about surrounding the JFK assassination that they were basically were saying you can't see it for another 50 years or they don't want the American public to see it so um, that is also something that lends to the conspiracy issues it's like what are they trying to hide from
1: us Right, and, and and what we said it's it's open, it's open to public. So again, there's access out there. Try mm. to see for yourself if you're interested. Mm. Um, you know, in, in in retrospect, looking back at his 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 you know domestic policy, you know JFK really is going to be known for what he represented more than what he did because he died so young. So he's going to embody the youthful spirit and the idealistic spirit of America. Whether he set up the Peace Corps, whether he he his support of civil rights legislation, it's going to be perfect PR for the U.S. during this ideological war with the Soviets. It's going to, He's going to also si- show signs of measured leadership and progressive reform, especially on how he handled the Cuban Missile Crisis, which we mentioned in the previous podcast. So take a look, listen to that if you haven't done so already. The bad, as you probably already know, his extramarital affairs that have come to light in the recent years. And of course, um, some people have contended that he did not pacify tension, but escalated tension between the USSR and us with his rhetoric.
0: Okay, so um, after his assassination, we have Lyndon Johnson is is, uh, sworn in uh, right on Air Force One in Dallas that that afternoon in in, uh, 1963 in November. And one of the things that he's most well-known for is his domestic policy known as Great Society. He's a committed New Dealer that you mentioned earlier, and uh, the unique uh, dichotomy of him being from Texas, but yet agreeing with a lot of the Northeast liberals in terms of what their view of the expanding power of the federal government, the effort that the federal government has in trying to improve the lives of Americans, social reforms are crucial to him. And he talks about how he grew up poor. He talks about being, uh, he grew up Uh, In a border town in Texas, where there, and one of his first jobs was actually as an elementary school teacher, where he was dealing with a lot of um, impoverished kids, and that really changed him. He always referenced that in his politics, and that was something that he, um, you know, referred back to in terms of his view of the world.
1: So he's going to kind of, obviously, like in in memory or kind of the extension of Kennedy's policies, he's going to help pass or sign the civil rights bill that was kind of ready in the works in 64. He's also going to push JFK's proposal of an income tax, but because of what Mr. Copeland's talking about, his his personal experiences with poverty is going to lead him to, to kind of launch, quote, a war on poverty. So he's gonna tell the public that we need to launch, you know, a really, really heavy uh, initiative to kind of address the problems of poverty in America that really weren't completely solved during the 1930s or 40s or even 50s. Remember the happy days, we get the impression of suburbia. Yeah, the two-faced decade right, that you mentioned. Right, okay. right, we're not really seeing that. And most of these findings are going to be reported in Michael Harrington's book, the Other America, 1962, very similar to Jacob Reese's,
0: um, like expose lives. of yeah. How
1: the Other Half Lives. So you might want to connect this. This could be, you could think of him as a, as a muckraker, if you will, to kind of just showcase the poverty that a lot of Americans are not really seeing because we're distracted on you know beating the Reds or handling and checking yeah. Soviet expansion abroad.
0: And like many things, ignorance leads to uh, the fact that nothing's going to be done about it. If people are not made
1: aware of the issue, they're not going to be passionate
0: about changing it.
1: So what is LBJ going to do with addressing 40 million Americans in poverty? Well, he's going to really pressure a, lot, a democratically held Congress to pass a significant amount of his plans, one in which will be the first to create the Office of Economic Opportunity, which is a department in which is going to facilitate the economic transition for people in power. So perhaps to, get to, to, to uh, create channels of communication, to offer them jobs, or perhaps um, giving them uh, some sort of literacy on how to kind of advocate for hiring of those jobs or investigating where are pockets in the region where jobs are needed. We need to get that connection between people that need jobs versus people who are offering jobs. A
0: lot of it was addressed at uh, education, that if people are unqualified, how are they going to be able to compete in the job market? So you have issues like Head Start, where they are helping children get education at a very young age, whether it be uh, preschool, I believe it was what it was, right? Right. And um, the Job Corps plays into it. But literacy how are you able to compete for those ever-changing job market now, you mentioned in the previous podcast, about how we are going to have more white-collar jobs than factory jobs in the future? We need to handle that and uh, you know make sure that the people in poverty are not left behind in our new, our new economy. So it's about helping them reach those opportunities that we now have.
1: And now, very much like how the 1830s viewed public school education, rather than trying to train the, 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 you know, the Democratic electorate of voting power, now schools also become an institution in which we have to kind of uh, have our future generations participate in a complex modern economy. Legal services. The poor, they don't know their rights, and they could be abused or exploited by their bosses. So not only that we're having Head Start programs, Job Corps, literacy programs, but they're also having some legal counseling as well. Now, keep this in mind, um, this is going to be a $1 billion budget, and most of these programs are kind of supported. The most controversial one that we, we should talk about is the Community Action Program. And as some of you listening right out there, you might not like this because this is a, an idea... Where it had mixed reviews, where it is, you're going to allocate those funds, those federal monies to poor neighborhoods, and you're giving those poor neighborhoods the autonomy to decide what they need to kind of b- bring themselves out of the of the pit of misery of poverty. Mm-hmm. It's controversial because a lot of people in certain social classes make the assumption that poor people don't know what to do with money. Because well, if they didn't know what to do with their money, they would have it. Yeah. That's one side. But other research has There's shown more
0: structural issues that are causing them to be in those situations
1: exactly the other hand was it started kind of there's some evidence to suggest it started to work Mm -hmm. that these people in fact because they're in a miserable position they know exactly what to do they're not going to use these money for drugs or alcohol or some you know philandering funds for some other nefarious means they're going to actually use it for the things that they need to do a lot of
0: those things tend to be myths where we mischaracterize that that people in poverty must be doing something terribly wrong in order to be there, um, sometimes just just really a case of really bad luck. And um, one of the things that this uh, addresses is going directly to the source. What do you need? How can we help here? What is the biggest obstacle you face here in this community? Rather than from Washington, D.C. saying, all right, this is what we're going to do for you. This is what will help you, and this is what's going to help you in M- Minneapolis, Minnesota. This is what's going to ha- help you in Baltimore, Maryland. There are different issues in every community, and that's why they wanted to connect with that to Give them a little bit more, as you said, autonomy
1: and say what happens. Okay. You can imagine now the conservative bloc, not only in the Republican Party, but in the the Democratic Party as, you know, if it doesn't affect, these programs don't affect them, they're going to start to become upset and they're going to increasingly be more suspicious of, quote, the welfare state. We're becoming now, we're shifting away from assuming the validity of New Deal programs and we're starting to question that this is a drain on the taxpayer, who is not going to benefit, in their view, on these programs. Yeah, and
0: part of it is the influence of what's going on in Europe and how the European Western democracies have created more of a welfare state. And in many ways you hear that as many uh, in the uh, defense of or the critics of these policies say we can't allow ourselves to get to to that point where we nationalize healthcare and things like that so th- that's that's a huge part of the resistance okay and that that brings us to the election in 1964 right johnson is looking for a vice president right JFK is assassinated. He takes over. Who's going to be his running mate? So that man we mentioned for the 1960 election, Hubert Humphrey, the liberal from Minnesota, is the man that they go with. And he's uh, he helps him run on his liberal agenda. Those pro- pro- uh, programs that we put in place help him win. And he goes up against man from Arizona, Senator Barry Goldwater, who in many ways is one of the... Um, originators of the fiscal conservative movement that led to the rise of Reagan that comes in the next generation. All right? so staunch conservative. He's attacking the welfare state, as Mr. V mentioned, and they're looking to roll back some of the programs that they believe have gone too far, such as Social Security, uh, in that the, the federal government is getting too involved in the daily lives of Americans. The federal government should not be telling you how to, how to use your money, all right? Uh, it ends up being a pretty significant victory for, for uh, Johnson and although the the passage of the civil rights act pr- provided some kind of uh, some messy issues and for him to win the south and even at the national democratic national convention there were conflicts between the southern delegations and the northern delegations um and this really is the final hint as to what's to come in the next few years with the passage of the civil rights act in 64 and um it leads to the democrats losing the south up until this time period now,
1: but L.G. Uh, excuse me, L.B.J. H- managed to secure enough of unity among the party to secure the vote, 61 percent, and he's going to also have a as a stronghold. a majority of both the houses in Congress will be Democrat as well. So y- y- by more than two-thirds margin. So that means he's in a really good position to pass most of the legislative agenda. Yes, that no he longer wanted. has to worry
0: about um, overturning of a veto. No longer has to worry about passing his agenda. He's going to be able to get a lot through, similar to F.D.R.
1: So he's going to continue his legislative agenda and his war on poverty and it's going to be, uh, these broader policy initiatives we're going to go through not all of them but we're going to really you know go deep into some of them that actually have a significant impact on for us today mm-hmm. and these broad policies are just generally known as great society reforms so kind of like on the war on poverty he's going to say we need to bring our society into a great standard and he's going to kind of do that with the uh, endorsement of several policies one in which will be the Food Stamp Act. I don't have to explain to you how, to many of you, you already know what the food stamps are, but these are going to be um, something that was already passed previously, and under his Great Society campaign, he's going just to expand the federal program to help more pe- poor people buy foods through the use of these vouchers or stamps.
0: Yeah, and and two of the major programs that are created during this Great Society are things we still have today that are uh, in, really, the public debate because of last summer's uh, health care debate is Medicare and Medicaid. and. For those of you that are not familiar with the difference, Medicare is basically health care for the elderly. At the age of 65, you qualify for um, health insurance program that our government is going to run. And the interesting thing is everyone talks about you know, nationalizing health care would be a terrible terrible thing but if you ask your grandparents most people are pretty satisfied with the way in which medicare functions um, medicaid is a little bit different it's not directed to a certain age group it's directed to people based on need so government paid health care for either the poor or the disabled so i would venture anyone you see in a wheelchair anyone you see that is not able-bodied they rely on medicaid to get their health care because many people that have permanent disabilities have incredibly exorbitant and expensive healthcare bills and healthcare costs. So the government says you should not go into poverty simply because you were born with a, some type of debilitating disease. The Medicaid program is meant to help those in the, uh, that are the most vulnerable and help those so that they can stay above the poverty level and they can maybe achieve the American dream with the help of this Medicaid program.
1: So it's, it's worthy of distinction because when we get into this debate later on about the nationalized health care and the insurance debate, especially when we go into the Obama years, it's important to know the distinctions because Medicare is really something that, as Mr. Copeland said, is, is functional, or at least as functional as it, as it stands, and Medicaid is something that a lot of people are kind of a little upset over. Some some people on the other side, you know, they don't want to kind of uh, provide taxpayer dollars to, again to people that are quote legally defined as poor, or disabled. What does that mean? What does this? Yeah, what does Medicare. This happen? Yeah,
0: Medicare is a benefit given to all people above sixty-five, right. whereas the Medicaid is a little bit more discretionary. So, like you can you can argue about um, to what extent that the Medicaid gets um, you know divvied out. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and like any New Deal program or any type of program that would be passed, these, these programs are going to be very difficult to roll back, especially because when it most or a, a big population of the American people are benefiting from this. Right? Well, The
0: same thing happens with Social Security, right. is that conservatives are, issue, are concerned with the size of these federal programs. It's very They find that it's very difficult to take programs away once people get accustomed to having them.
1: The next uh, proposal under Great Society that we would like to focus on is the Elementary and Secondary Education Act. So obviously, it provides aid, especially to these poor districts. I want to go a little bit more in depth to that. The dreaded textbook that you hate and any kind of subjects, uh, you can thank this act for that. Well, St. Anthony's being a very affluent school, we probably be, would be able to afford this. But I want you to imagine if you're in a poor area or let's say rural Tennessee or like in a really, really, really poor urban district, um, it was never kind. of. Of, like, guaranteed that you would be provided with adequate supply of textbooks. Maybe you'd have one or two out of a class of 20, right? And people would have to share textbooks. Obviously, this would be a detriment and you would not be able to learn as much. So, this act really truly guaranteed the access to a lot of textbooks yeah. throughout the, the the United States. So, we still have this in effect today. Certain basic and, standards and basic of what standards, everybody should be given. Exactly. Yeah. And again, you can understand why there might be some like um, resistance to that because if you look at the Constitution, um, typically the reserve powers of education will fall into the states. So again, people that are very against great society will make the argument that the federal government is overstepping their jurisdiction in matters in which were historically reserved to the states. But again, when some of these areas are really, 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 really not being able to have adequate supplies, and I'm talking about some sectors in which we're just proportionately people of color, we're going to have to start to make that moral like, you know, argument or some sort of moral like. Um, justification to provide these things. Remember, education is the opportunity for achievement. If we believe in a meritocracy, we want these people to kind of work really hard for their for for you know, for this country.
0: Yeah. Um, another part of the great society has to do with immigration. So the 1920s um, quotas that were established with the National Origins Act. Um, We get rid of them. It's abolition of the quotas. We get rid of them. And one of the interesting things about it is they heavily favored European immigration. All right. So it's part of what's left over of the nativism of the 1920s. So when we're stripping that away, we increase opportunities for Asians and Latin Americans to finally immigrate to um, the United States. And and that's a crucial role in the way in which he uh, foresees his great society programs as um,
1: creating a new generation of Americans and giving
0: opportunity to anyone who's willing to work for it.
1: Also, this is a very interesting strategic goal. If you want to look from a cold foreign policy standpoint, what better way to show the merits, again, of a capitalistic dem- dem- democracy than saying we have open doors here? Mm-hmm. What is interesting, though, by the 70s, 80s, and even 90s, the demographics of this country are going to significantly change to which we'll have a very interesting impact on our domestic politics in the future, especially the rise of neoconservative. We'll yeah. talk later about that.
0: There, there, when, you, when you look at immigrant uh, immigration in our country, you see every state in America um, right around this time is when it starts to shift from Europe being the primary source of um, immigrants to now Central America, Mexico, being the number one for most of the, the 90s in our childhood.
1: And how the, and how the general European-American uh, response to those demographic changes are, is going to be a significant factor in a lot of elections. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, other something that we really want also f- uh, f- like really stress are the two new cabinet departments. One of which is the Department of Transportation. I mentioned in previous lectures that with the proliferation of the highways and the consumer culture that leads to heavy buying of automobiles, there's going to be a really really bad pro- big problem with the depletion or the degradation of of metropolitan uh, transportation systems so the department of transportation is going to kind of address those issues especially in urban areas subways tra- railroads especially people that cannot afford cars need to rely upon to go and get a job or to continue working at the job the second department of course coincides with that it is the housing and urban development or hud for short yeah. In which we are going to be focused on this. T- t- this particular agency will be very much focused on how to kind of help poor neighborhoods again um, be safe, secure, so that can they can have a, 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 an existence uh, within this country. Yeah,
0: their initiative is focused on really providing housing for those who can't quite afford it. Okay. So, if we're going to help lift people out of poverty, one of the things that helps limit homelessness, homelessness more than uh, anything during this time period, is the development of HUD where we have federal subsidies that are provided to people that qualify based on their income, based on their ability to pay, um, where the government will help you pay for your rent.
1: In addition, we're also gonna have programs to regulate the automobile industry, inspired by Ralph Nader's book, Unsafe at Any Speed. We're also going to pass clean air water laws uh, that will be enacted, also inspired by another muckraker, if you think of the 20th century, Carson's expose on Silent Spring in 1962.
0: And that's one of the interesting things, is sometimes when we talk about environment, we think about it being, you know, one group of Americans is for the environment, or it's somehow political. You know, like we choose sides nowadays. Um, but you know, Lady Bird Johnson is uh, the first lady of the United States, and she really la- launches a campaign to be involved in the, the environment, um, called Beautify America. And one of the things she says she's famous for saying is that you know the environment is one thing that we all have in common, right? If we're gonna you know get into all these different debates about politics, foreign policy, and all these different issues. There's one thing that we all are affected by and that's the environment. So how can we not come together to do some things? So the interesting thing that we always reference the EPA when it's eventually created it's created by a Republican Richard Nixon. So the environment was not always such uh, contentious political ground like it is today for some reason.
1: And overall the evaluation of great society is still kind of hotly debated but it's kind of be boiled down to two things. The good policies for some people will claim that were working gave vital assistance to millions of Americans who who have been forgotten or ignored during this time. The bad: these policies were ineffective in eliminating poverty, and it ultimately created a centralized, again, welfare state. Those are your buzzwords. If you want to kind of, you know, dichotomize it a little bit, and a burden to the taxpayer. Um, this will not go unheard or un, uh, unaddressed, um, especially in the 70s and 80s, when we talk about the conservative resurgence in reaction to some of these uh, quick legislative proposals. Johnson's full entry into the Vietnam War, um, unfortunately, will overshadow Great Society's legacy and uh, a, a reputation by raising taxes and inflation. So it's difficult. It's very much like New Deal. It's very difficult to ascertain the effectiveness of it when it's overshadowed by war. Yeah,
0: because that was really the decision, or excuse me, that was the issue that led to his decision to have to not run for re-election in '68, and and that's why he's um, remembered. You know, so. So that brings us to the civil rights efforts in 1960s, and um, you know, after JFK's death, you know JFK was somebody who helped facilitate the the March on Washington in '63. Um, you know, LBJ continues the same spirit, but it's interesting and somewhat ironic that the Dixiecrat from Texas is the one leading the civil rights reform. So, but it is important and symbolic that it is endorsed by a Southern Democrat, and what that means. So the Civil Rights Act, after much Turmoil, resistance, pro- provocation from the civil rights movement led by Martin Luther King. We finally have some legislation that is passed in 1964.
1: And it's important to know the distinction between legislation and court's decisions, right? And you know, in in Brown v. Board Ed, we have nine justices interpreting this. Now we have the 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 endorsement. Um, theoretically of the majority of the Congress and and, and by extension the majority of the people. Yeah, the the so representatives it's, of the people, uh, the are, are, people making this, are making yeah. this decision so there's no way that the states could like whine about this yeah. especially with the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 which made segregation illegal in all public facilities. Brown v. Board Ed was just in, in terms schools. of the context of schools yeah. now we're talking about other public uh, facilities which included hotels and restaurants yeah, and, and, and What's whatnot.
0: important in that is the federal government now has powers to enforce school desegregation all right? and now um, similar to the way troops were sent in in the past, where presidents had to take action, um, now uh, they have efforts in enforcing segregation everywhere. Okay, and, and one of the other things that's important is job opportunities. Okay, it parallels the issues with the war on poverty. Is that if we're going to give opportunities to, to people, the Civil Rights Act is necessary to set up the Equal Opportunity, uh, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, which handles the issues with uh, people of color not being hiring, not hired in the same. Uh, way in which the general population
1: again in the same year congress is going to go ahead and ratify the 24th amendment which again if you know anything about amendments really just cements legislation into our constitutional framework and it's going to abolish the poll tax a long standing series of state laws that many of of, of the area of the south used to disenfranchise Black communities. Now era. that is going to be eliminated. Exactly, it's Jim Crow errors that have been designed by and and created probably by 1872 to 1877. If you remember the Compromise of 1877, we have the final withdrawal of federal troops. We have the the power vacuum, the the reinsertion of Democratic um, white supremacists back in, and we have the construction of Jim Crow's. All that now, the poll tax. The Twenty Fourth Amendment kind of basically puts a nail to that coffin. Well, you would think so, right? right? You would right. think so, but on paper, yeah, yeah. And, and that's
0: one of the things is LBJ is even frustrated in his dealings with Martin Luther King is that Martin Luther King is very excited and very proud of what the Civil Rights Act accomplishes, but it's not enough yet because you know LBJ politically says, "I've done so much for you, I can't risk anything more." Um, The members of Congress that have helped pass the Civil Rights Act are not going to be able to help you any any way further. Because what King is advocating for is a Voting Rights Act. Because one of the things that he's focused on is black people are still getting uh, lynched. Black people are still getting disproportionately thrown in jail and accused of crimes that maybe they did not commit. Okay, Depending upon the case. And the the major issue he says is that, uh, Mr. President, with all due respect, the reason why we are still being oppressed is that the right to vote is still something that we have not been truly given. And the problem is how that affects things is that, if politicians are only beholden to certain groups, they are not going to be concerned when one group is, you know, being persecuted or being um, oppressed. And the major issue with that is most states get their jury pools from their voter registrations. So it guaranteed that almost all of the southern states would have all-white juries making decisions on cases for black um, defendants. And one of the things he said mm-hmm. is even when you have issues of um, black, um, excuse me, racial terrorism in the South, when it comes to the church bombings and, and things like this that we, will, we unfortunately don't have too much time to talk about is that these people that are consistently being acquitted like the Emmett Teal murderers, all right, They're being acquitted by all white juries. So if you can't even go to your own church and worship without being fe- felt feeling that your life is being threatened, um, that's a system that cannot work. And the Voting Rights Act is something that he knows With if we can break down some of the restrictions that many were put in along with the poll tax, there were many more restrictions preventing African Americans from voting, we can then start to change the political landscape of the South, right? And so they end literacy tests that we talked about in the Reconstruction era. And one of the key provisions of the, the voting, Rights Act, voting Rights Act is that the federal government is going to be able to help foresee the registrations Okay. They're no longer going to be able to ask you know, how many bubbles are in a bar of soap to prevent you from registering. And for all future law changes, they're going to have federal oversight that before you change anything, you need the Attorney General's office in Washington, D.C. to approve that, no matter you're in Alabama, Mississippi, or anywhere else. But that was for places that had had a history of um, oppressing and disenfranchising African Americans.
1: And it's very important to keep these these democratic channels open to all people within society because the theory goes, if these channels are obstructed in any way, either by de jure law or de facto systems of, uh, you know, of abuse, then the only way to express your frustration um, is through other alternative forms and that's violence folks so I need you to start being a little bit more critical on how we even view violence and political expression we often like to link violence is bad but as I told you before in our lecture notes about uh, our ways of looking at radicals and ways of kind of going against systems of oppression, we tend to think negatively about violence. But again, you you, you clean up the, the, the channels of democracy, there would be no need for these violence. It's a little bit
0: more nuanced than that. And that's the thing. If if democracy is about giving every person a voice, if their voice is being silenced, they're gonna have to do it another way. And that's the violence that you spoke about. All right. So the conflict, we talked about um, civil disobedience uh, today in class and um, the Montgomery bus boycotts, but you know no one could say passive resistance and civil disobedience is weak, right? They sought sought out conflict and confrontation with their oppressors, oppressors because they needed the attention in order to change the mind, hearts and minds of people throughout America, and in 1963. There's a movement, Montgomery was earlier in the 50s, 1963, they decided to choose, uh, to go to Birmingham, Alabama as the next battleground for the civil rights. And um, Martin Luther King is arrested for leading these mar- these demonstrations. And in many ways, this legitimized the movement more than ever before, because the sentence for how long he was put in prison, do you know the exact time? I don't, was, know. I don't know. Several weeks, I think it might have been, I don't know the exact date. But it just seemed like it was unfair for he for him to be singled out amongst all others they were trying to send a message and while in prison what he's most famous for is writing what is known as the letter from a birmingham jail which is in it ended up inspiring Kennedy to support tougher rights bills in '63.
1: And unfortunately, we're not going to have time to read the entire letter. But in the letter, he kind of like just lays out and justifies why he's crossing state lines. If you remember, Martin Luther King is is an Atlanta uh, born, uh, Atlanta boy born and raised, and he's going to cross state lines to Birmingham, Alabama, in the coordination with other civil rights organizations. And he's going to be arrested. He's going to lay down why he crossed state lines to cause quote trouble, according to the segregationists that he is and he's going to allude not only Christian uh, biblical verses but he's also going to allude to Greek philosophers in this and this is very important the language is very important the diction is very important because it is going to appeal to a lot of white audiences what has eluded white readers for years though is the tendency to think again as Mr. Copeland said as Martin Luther as a dove if you really look closely at the language of the Birmingham jail, he wants to kind of push for uh, uh, the, the the medium ground between being a complacent do, nother, do nothinger and the violent radical that will be unfortunately characterized by Malcolm X in the middle. So he is, again, pushing for civil disobedience, but that does not necessarily mean uh, kind of being a pushover.
0: The only thing I wanted to add to that was uh, the, the thought of um, him coming into Birmingham um, was viewed by many, even clergy, as disruptive. That, you know, you, the the causes you know, you're asking for too much too, too fast. Be patient. And so there's this long um, address to King and to the movement right uh, during this Birmingham uh, demonstration to saying that they are asking for too much by much of the white clergy from the, throughout the South. And he is basically directing the letter from Birmingham jail to tear down each one of the arguments that they have that they are claiming as the reason why he should not be taken seriously
1: and understand the position of a segregationist it's not just the fact that a bunch of black people are going around and like you know talking to each other and communicating and commiserating on s- systems of oppression but remember this is in the, the broader context is the fear of marxism and communism and and martin luther king Although not a stringent Marxist, the things that he's promoting, economic justice, opportunity for education, taking down obstacles on state and federal levels, it will sound... And be misassociated with Marxist regimes. So you have to understand that there's an, there's other elements of just the fact that it's a bunch of black people kind of talking about their rights. How, and we have to kind of acknowledge that Martin Luther King was not necessarily you know a warm and fuzzy guy in the sense that he just wanted everyone to have peace, love, and justice for all. He really was very methodical in how he chose to purposely disobey laws, and he was okay with disobeying obeying the law. So good good trouble, good trouble. Right. And and we tend to overlook that. And we tend to think, oh, he's just peaceful. And these bad, you know, segregationists are, you know, how would how dare they just arrest him for no just cause? Well, here's the deal, folks. They did have just cause. He actively went against the laws. And I wonder if we kind of put on our thinking caps on just for a second. I really wonder how we would view someone like Martin Luther King today especially with some of us who emphasize law and order. Mm -hmm. Well, my question to you that's listening out there, what happens if the law and the orders that we prescribe are morally wrong? Mm -hmm.
0: What do we do then? That's, That's the exact crux of this argument here, is that you need to confront those things. And those clergymen that we mentioned earlier, they basically told them you need to find a legal way to combat these issues. You're being thrown in jail, you're hurting the movement. You're asking for too much, all right? And he was criticized because of the fact that he was doing things that were quote unquote illegal, all right? And one of the things that he's frustrated with is he points out that, you know, Germany had a lot of things that were legal. (laughs) You know, uh, the founding of our country started with the Boston Tea Party. That wasn't legal, okay? Sometimes these are the things that you need to do. And um, he calls out the white moderate in this letter more than any other group and the white clergymen, as they are focused on comfort and discomfort is what is needed in these moments and he calls them out for the fact that they are so devoted to their order rather than justice and that this negative peace the absence of tension is what they're interested in tension is scary they don't want that but what he says is that a positive piece is the presence of justice, all right? Anybody who says, I agree with you, but I can't agree with how you're doing it, all right? Um, you're, you want things too quickly. You need to be patient. And he says, the Negro has waited too long. There is not going to be a more convenient time. Now is the time. That's what the Birmingham, letter from Birmingham jail really addresses.
1: And look, in the letter, he makes a direct parallel to Socrates' allegory of the cave, which I know a lot of you are reading right now. And if you remember, it's a story in which a prisoner escapes a cave, experiences the truth represented by sunlight, and he experiences pain. So Martin Luther King wants us to be unshackled in the cave, and to see the truth that everyone should be truly created equal and have equal opportunity and equal rights but that is going to ha- that's going to happen with a certain amount of pain so mlk had no problem having a certain level of tension as leverage to kind of push for some of the more political reforms that he was able to do on the federal level. He was able to kind of sway JFK and LBJ. We like to think that LBJ and JFK just one day woke up and said, I want to do this for black people. We cannot forget that it It was under the pressure. 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 It came from grassroots pressure from the bottom up. So we really have to appreciate... Always how change
0: happens. You know, that's how we addressed it. Bottom-up change from small local levels and it has to filter up that way. You know, and that's the frustration is that sometimes the way we look back at King is this sanitized, I have a dream speech. Everything is rosy and, and beautiful and I just wish that we could be like that. And everybody heard him speak and everybody's hearts and minds were changed. That's not how it was. It was an active, very vigilant effort sustained effort for 15, 20 years his entire life for all the causes that you mentioned. And, and that's what led to the March on Washington where he gave that speech.
1: And it's interesting, like, uh, you know, we have this slow evolution, right? The more the more exposure King has, the more popularity he has, we go from being annoyed a, as the dominant culture to eventually reacting with violence. So if you notice in 63, we did, there was an attempt to silence him by throwing him in jail. By March on Washington in August in 63... There was, you know, attempt to sanitize him. But then as he continued on his march to Montgomery by 65 and really pushing for more voting rights or the enforcement of already pre-existing voting rights legislation or the support of these voting rights legislation, we're going to see beatings and tear gas, Mm in an event known as Bloody Sunday on his way from Selma uh, to Montgomery, Alabama, where a lot of his followers are going to be met with Violence And this, again, TV plays a very important part, much like how we talked about we talked about the Tet Offensive in Vietnam, much how we talked about earlier about the televised debates between Kennedy and Nixon. Violence is going to be televised. And this is going to be the turning point for a lot of Americans in the civil rights movement.
0: Yeah, the, the crucial element about that is it was a conscious choice to choose Montgomery, Alabama, because, as we said, this is about confrontation right if you're going to prove that a rule uh, excuse me a law is morally corrupt and unjust you need to confront that and the, his goal was all about raising the consciousness of the country so everyone be aware of what's going on and fortunately for them the difficulties and the violence that they endured made a difference because when the rest of america just like when the people saw that image of emmett till how that shocked people into action when the rest of america saw Peaceful demonstrators trying to cross a bridge being beaten and run over with um, police officers on um, horseback on live television across the country and then repeated again on the nightly news for millions and millions of people. That was really, as you said, the tipping point or the turning point where after that they had more support than they ever had before.
1: So we're going to kind of shift gears here. And and a good question that some of you should be asking right now is, well, if if Martin Luther King is really creating tension and it seems like he's making political headway, right? He's pressuring a lot of people in the federal level and even in some areas in the state levels to actually change, if not or adhere to pre-existing laws to protect black rights. A good question to ask is then why did we get someone like Malcolm X? Why did we get someone like the Black Panthers or the rise of what we would call later as black nationalism and black militancy? And it's very simple. And you have to understand Malcolm X and his origins to really, truly appreciate this. So Malcolm X was born in Omaha, Nebraska in the 1920s. He's going His father, okay, Earl Little, that's Malcolm's actual last name, Little, is also going to be very instrumental in the Marcus Garvey movement in the 1920s. If you don't remember Marcus Garvey, he is going to be one of the civil rights leaders in the earlier half of the 20th century, unlike Willem Du Bois, who's going to want to, kind of like Martin Luther King, use political channels or jurisdiction to kind of push for those rights under the 14th and 15th Amendment, right? Utilizing the laws already already in the books to fight for those rights, unlike Willem Du Bois. And unlike Booker T. Washington, who's going to kind of, in many ways, try to survive in a pre-existing white supremacist structure by trying to instill value or prove value, Marcus Garvey, in the 1900s, early 1900s, is going to say, screw this. They call for black separation and independence. And I need you to mention that and note that because this this separatist movement really didn't begin with Elijah Muhammad. It did not begin with Malcolm X. It began with Marcus Garvey. So... Malcolm X's father, Earl Little, is going to be very instrumental in this type of movement. He's going to be one of the organizers in this movement. And Malcolm X, Malcolm Little, when he's young, is going to be inspired by his father. And he's going to tragically die in the 1930s. He's going to be shot uh, like any type of crime involving a black man in the 30s of all decades. The, the 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 justice is not going to be well served, right? There's going to be shoddy investigative work. There's not going to be any like a, there's yeah, there's going to be no suspects. There's going to be no type of in, in indictment on any charge mentioned. And Malcolm X will take this to the to the rest to, to the grave, so to speak. And he's always in his biography. He's going to really kind of. Uh, 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 identify his father's death with white supremacy he's always going to be suspect that it was a group of white people kind of attacking him and, and killing his father as a result of his political agenda in the 20s as well as the 30s his mother is going to be committed to the insane asylum so now we have malcolm x little malcolm little is going to be a warden of the state and he's going to bounce around to foster home to foster home interestingly enough if you noticed o- omaha you're going to know that it's a predominantly white neighborhood which is ironic you would think that someone like malcolm x who who was very much aggressive towards the white population would be surrounded by black people but he wasn't for his entire livelihood and he's going to desperately want to gain the attention and admiration of his white peers again eventually constant rejection will lead to resentment and he's going to be incarcerated for some sort of burglary charge. And it will be in 1952 in jail. Well, he will become converted to uh, an Islam, a black Islam and be very much inspired by a leader called Elijah Muhammad. He's going to be one of the proponents like Marcus Garvey, like his father. Right. In many ways, you can say that Elijah Muhammad filled the vacant spot that his father left in the 30s mm-hmm. under this pretext of black nationalism. Frustrated with society that seemed to have always cast him aside, Malcolm X will convert to Islam and join the Nation of Islam, along with the leadership of Elijah Muhammad. And he's going to be this big proponent of black nationalism. And here's the theory. It's not as violent as you think, and it makes sense. If black people have self-pride, go back to Brown v. Board Education, the doll experiment. It has been proven already in the courts that black children have an inferiority complex established by our white supremacist society the theory of black nationalism is simple we must separate from this, so we can have our children empowered, and then they could become economically successful. Then they could become politically successful. Then they could start to interact the appropriate way, not always trying to beg and and, and cajole the white dominant group to give them something. So it's really interesting to see from this perspective because now think of how Malcolm X is looking at Martin Luther King.
0: Well, that's the interesting thing. You asked people in the nineteen fifties or ask people now, who was the leader of the Civil Rights Movement in the 1950s? A lot of people will not realize that it was Malcolm X. The face to most white Americans, the face of the Civil Rights Movement early on is Malcolm X. And he presents this dangerous representation of... We're not. We're tired of asking for rights. We're going to take our rights.
1: And actually, and, it, and I don't even think I'm not even going to go as far as saying it's that dangerous to Malcolm X. It seems completely seems logical. logical. Yeah. Because if you look at Martin Luther King, look at look at the Civil Rights Act yeah. of 1964. Look at the Voting Rights Act of 65. He has to go throughout the South to convince people to follow federal laws. So to Malcolm X's position, it's a waste of time. It's tactics that are not worthy. That's of, nice. Yeah. He got us de jure rights. Yeah. You got us rights on paper, but show me some concrete proof that the black community has, in fact, advanced as a result of Brown v. Board Ed. Desegregation. Where are we there? You have a lot of problems with the black community. There's not many black people going to white schools. And if they are, white people are leaving those schools to private schools. To Malcolm X, he is convinced that despite the paper and all the nice the words that we put on our pages to pat ourselves in the back is not doing a lick of difference for the black community and as poor and this is going to continue to hurt the black community. He's going to accuse MLK in, in many ways as being an Uncle Tom. He's too. He's waiting too long. He's letting them. He's
0: capitulating to what the white people want instead of serving the black people what they need.
1: He's complacent. Yeah. And if you if you don't know the reference, Uncle Tom comes from Uncle Tom's Cabin a character referenced by Harry Beecher Stowe's novel in which was a character that really placated to white people. Yeah. And this is very, this is very troubling for many reasons. one, You can understand Malcolm X's point of view, but when he starts to throw shade, so to speak, to MLK, you're going to begin to see, in the beginning at least, a division among the black community. And if you you don't have to be a genius to realize this, they're trying to make so much headway. They're trying to push through these rights. The last thing that they need right now his division. Is division. Yeah. And that's what MLK is going to think of when he sees or hears Malcolm X's criticisms of him. Yes. He's going to say, I'm in Selma. I'm, I'm making a difference. I'm the one who's jailed. I'm not being peaceful. Yeah. I'm trying to make a difference. And now I see you in the corner kind of challenging the way I approach civil disobedience. Do not mistake, Mr. X, the difference between civil disobedience and complacency. Yeah. And there's going to be a riff, and it's going to really be important for you to understand that because that's when power structures, especially a dominant white community, is going to kind of capitalize on that and exploit these differences in approach on how to handle white racism.
0: Yeah, and it's very interesting the way Malcolm X evolves because early on, all the views that you expressed are really his concrete view of the world. And later on in his life, he starts to get a little bit disenchanted with the nation of Islam that he and Elijah Muhammad and the leadership of the hypocr- hypocrisy in- inherent in many institutions like that. And eventually he makes a trip to Mecca. He has his pilgrimage to Mecca, as all Muslims should have at least once in their life. And it changes him. He sees differently. He comes back to America and sees the, the methods of Martin Luther King as the proper way and even goes so far as to meet with Martin Luther King's wife while he's in prison, saying, let me help the movement. Let me be the more aggressive, the more dangerous, or the version of change that the white population would not want. Let me be the, the thing that they fear so that they will, of course, take the deal with Martin Luther King and
1: view his views,
0: as he, his ways and methods
1: as the proper way. Remember, radical protest is a a matter of relativity. So if you have one person like MLK making noise, he's the radical. But according to Malcolm X, if there's two now and he's really pushing a hardline stance, a more militant stance, obviously for white audiences, the, the, the more... The more plausible or the more likely alternative is MLK. They're going to go to MLK. They're going to they're going to be more willing to negotiate with the quote unquote moderate now, even though MLK was never a moderate. Mm. Now, in comparison to Malcolm X, he will be viewed as mal- uh, as a moderate, and he and and white people will be more willing to uh, negotiate with him.
0: And, and the um you know, the sad thing about it is the end of Malcolm X's life, in many ways, because he saw the flaws within the Nation of Islam that brought about his death, is that uh, the, he was finally assassinated while giving a speech in 1965 by members of the National uh, Nation of Islam and that they took him down because of the fact that he was speaking truth to what they were doing.
1: Martin Luther King, upon hearing his assassination, as a stand-up gentleman as he is, had a very few very few kind words to say about Malcolm X. Uh, something along the lines of although we never met eye to eye on the issues, Malcolm X always stood. In line with the truth uh, of promoting the rights of the black of of the the people of color and black community, Mm -hmm. Um, and it's interesting because had Malcolm X survived, it would be really interesting to see. You know, a lot of questions pop in my mind. Would there have been further collaboration between the two? They didn't really meet. They didn't really meet that often. So we have to. It's very interesting. Another point I want to make is when Malcolm X dies, Martin Luther King really wants the black community to recognize that it's okay to have a difference in ideology and approach, but there are these none of these ideologies should be enough to significantly splinter the community because once you have a split community, that's when it's all over. You lose traction, you lose momentum. The white community will never really do it on their own. You need a strong black political base to push for these rights. Yeah.
0: That's, that's uh, one of the interesting things is Malcolm X did leave a mark on society in a sense of how he changed the way young black men and young black activists viewed themselves. right? So what Malcolm X’s ideology does is it really inspires the next generation of activists within the black community. And that really helped this SNCC that we mentioned for the um, Montgomery bus boycotts and the, the sit-ins in excuse me, in Greensboro, North Carolina. the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee as well as the Congress of Racial Equality Corps, um, they are really founded out of that inspiration from Malcolm X's ideology. And uh, the chairman of SNCC is Stokely Carmichael. And he was repudiated nonviolence and advocated for black power and racial separatism that you mentioned. And in many ways, he was more of a radical than the John Lewis that was a member of SNCC, um, who now still currently serves in our Congress representing Atlanta. And that brings us to 1966, after Malcolm X's death, where we have Huey Newton and Bobby Seale. They form a revolutionary socialist movement that advocates for self-rule for blacks. That party happens to be known as the Black Panthers. And this is a movement that's going to push things in a direction in which that separatism, that pride, black power for them is not an aggressive statement. For them it's an empowering statement. And the problem is the way white people start begin
1: to perceive this. I want you to put this in a little bit of perspective. All social movements are chaotic by nature. That means you have a lot of different people, different ideologies, different approaches to handle the situation. For God's sakes, the way we did the American Revolution, the way we started to construct our nation, the Constitutional Convention, you could say it as a messy process. You have mm-hmm. a lot of different factions. You have people kind of, you know, fighting constantly. And it's there's a certain they're, level they're of they're chaos. Quakers, they Quakers. wouldn't get on board. Right. right. And, and, and the point, what I'm trying to make is when when it's a certain side in history, we tend to I- idolize that, right? We idolize the constitutional convention. We idolize the chaotic nature and the differences of how to iron out all the details of a social movement in the American Revolution. It's the same thing with the social uh, movement in the civil rights era. We cannot hold individuals accountable to the um, you know, I guess, capricious whim of ideologies uh, that happens in all social movements. So, you know, it's interesting that we have Malcolm X, he recants violence, He gets assassinated. Then we have the uh, Stokely Carmichael that kind of goes, you know, he starts to embrace some of the uh, Malcolm X's ideology. And then we have an even further extension of that with Bobby Seale and Huey Newton and the Black Panthers. So it's very interesting and and it's important to make distinctions among these black individuals because when you start pitting them and grouping them all together, that's when we have the breakdown of communication and the breakdown of compromise.
0: One of the major events that happens in 1965 is the riots in Watts, Los Angeles. It starts with a black motorist who was arrested for, um, under the suspicion of drunk driving. And white police officer is the man who pulls him over. While in the efforts of possibly um, determining whether he is intoxicated, a fight breaks out between the two of them. Now, all indications point to this police officer did not act in any way that was incorrect. But the problem is, this fight breaks out, there are people nearby, they start joining in. All of a sudden more police show up. This, this fight escalates very quickly and then throughout the community there are rumors spreading that somehow the police hurt a black pregnant woman or the police did this or the police did that and the fact that those rumors would lead to riots is indicative of the type of relationship that that community had with the police. And this is something that lasted for 60 days, where 34 people were killed and over 700 buildings were destroyed, all because of the facts we mentioned earlier. When you don't have the democratic opportunity for your voice to be heard, if something, a little spark, is to happen in your community, that's gonna be the opportunity for you to lash out and violence ensues because of frustration because you feel like no one is paying attention and hopelessness. There's this element of hopelessness that many in this community have, which leads to this. And the riots continue for each summer in these black neighborhoods through, all the way until 1968, the next three years. I
1: mean, there's a reason why LBJ was passing great society programs, because again, like Mr. Copeland's saying, it's not just white poverty that's happening, it's, it's disproportional black pro- p- poverty that's creating this context of desperation. And I love, I, I think that we tend to think at individual events and we hyper focus on whether or not this was right or wrong, and we ignore the context. Because if you just look at the event, A black motorist being arrested by a white officer and then riots happening, killing 34 people and destroying 700 buildings. If you're just looking at that one little microcosm of a moment in history, of course it seems ridiculous. And it's easy to assume that this response is unwarranted. But if you zoom out and you really start to think of all the underlying reasons, hundreds of years of this type of oppression. Hold on. Think about it this way.
0: Okay. Now. Let's think about a simple metaphor that everyone should understand being bullied, because you and I know something about that. Now.
1: <laughs> I don't know about you. you know, so. <laughs> it's easy oh. when you're like 6'4". Well, I was <laughs> freshman. Oh, absolutely.
0: Yeah, you're right. Freshman, Chris Copeland was 5'2", 95 pounds, and maybe had a bully or two. Now, let me tell you a story. So, freshman year, sophomore year, junior year, there's this small runt of a kid getting bullied. You? No, I'm just, this is a metaphor. (laughs) Let me work here. So you're dealing with someone that's consistently bullying you, pushing you, knocking your books down in the hallway, all right? Punching you in the arm, maybe once or twice, shoving you down the stairs, okay? If you or I, senior year, witnessed this kid slug somebody, we might think he's the aggressor. Right. Because we don't see the backstory. We don't see everything that led him to that boiling point. We don't see the pressure building up to the point where he has to let it out and strike back but in many ways the society in Los Angeles the community in Los Angeles felt like they were under watch of a police force and of a police commissioner that was bullying the community and in in many ways this has to do with the great migration the increase of the black community in many urban areas and Los Angeles was one of the areas with the black population had skyrocketed in the last 30 40 years and this was a reaction to it in that they're trying to contain what they don't know how to handle and that is the best way to look at these riots breaking out, is that it was a, the culmination of a 30, 40-year-old period of distrust and lack of, or the absence of trust whatsoever between the black community and the police force, and that's what made it happen.
1: So the, so this won't stop in 65. Riots will continue each summer up until 1968 in in black neighborhoods throughout major cities. So again um, you, you, we're, we're getting this idea that um, the black community is so frustrated and there's very limited democratic channels to kind of express that uh, that, that frustration so we're going to see this through violence interestingly enough there has been little evidence to connect the Black Panther movement and these riots together. Because some critics tried to connect. And there has been an attempt to do so because it makes sense, right? And it just so happens when, you know, the rise of Bobby Seale and Huey Newton come around, that's when we have these riots. But I feel like, again, that kind of uh, belies the amount of actual oppression that a lot of these black people have in their communities, right? It's not about just individuals convincing the masses that they have a problem that doesn't exist. The problem does exist. Yeah. Think of it this way. If they had democratic channels open to them, they had access and opportunity. You guys are students. It's really hard to motivate you. And I hate to tell you, it's not just about adolescents. Human beings are hard to motivate. Think about that. We are naturally in, we'd like to be in stasis to motivate mass groups of people to do this amount of dest- destruction. It has to be over for good reason. Mm-hmm. Because if everyone had rights, even if you had a bunch of rebel rousers, which you inevitably do in any society, maybe a minority group, right? A smaller group within that group saying, we need to rebel and and riot, you're really not going to get much traction in that group. So really start to think of how human beings are motivated to do these actions and you'll start seeing the connections here. So
0: at the conclusion of all this violence, LBJ eventually sanctions a commission to investigate what was the cause, what happened, how can we learn from this to prevent it from happening in the future? And it's known as the Kerner Commission. They want to figure out how this was um, such a terrible issue. The conclusion basically is this, is the things we're talking about, is that it's racism and segregation are chiefly responsible because the people in this community viewed that there were two societies, one black and one white, and they were separate, but they were definitely unequal. And, as you mentioned, the difference between De jour and de facto you know it's much more than just this segregation that is on the books has been abolished but now it's like what is actually being practiced and that's the the result of this investigation is we need to address
1: these issues within our society and what i find very interesting is the actual honesty of the kerner commission this is a team of white federal officials being very clear and honest at the state of affairs at the height of of the height of our race riots in 1968. So we have to like really, this is coming from the uh, the authority, the federal government is now stating this. So this really should underscore how legitimate uh, the problems were between the two races. Despite the legitimacy of these tensions, at some point, the amount of riots is going to frustrate and or scare a large majority of white people just like the problem with the labor movements and because of this fear anyone who kind of can address this fear by issuing again buzzwords like law and order will be welcomed and someone again like richard nixon will take advantage of this political context and kind of tap into what we will later call the silent majority into kind of honing these people that are kind of frustrated with constant riotings and starting to question not only our society, but also some of these more liberal agendas in terms of how to address them.
0: And that brings us to the conclusion of this podcast, which is the unfortunate assassination of Martin Luther King, which happens in Memphis, Tennessee. The effect of the riots that we just mentioned really has a... um, effect on the way in which the American people are viewing the civil rights movement and that with all the violence, it just kind of is bad noise associated with the movement. And the you know naturally, you connect the two as causing one another, um, regardless of the actual facts. So part of the issue is civil disobedience that he is promoting is losing traction. People are not as excited to participate in it as the violence intensifies, it kind of is falling on deaf ears. It's like, yeah, I thought you were talking about nonviolence, Martin King, uh, Mr. King. Uh, didn't work out so well, did it? So one of the things that occurs is in April 1968, Martin Luther King is involved in the civil rights movement, but also, he, as you mentioned earlier, economic justice is something he's very passionate about. And he goes to advocate for and help um, black workers that are striking, sanitation workers that are striking in uh, Tennessee. And while there that weekend, he's assassinated on the balcony of his hotel room, uh, just outside of his room. And uh, it's a tragedy for America, and riots erupt all throughout the country, 168 cities, 46 people dead, because, as the same reasoning we mentioned before, hope is a very important thing, and Martin Luther King provided hope for a lot of these people. And now with that gone, um, many of them didn't know what to do next, and they lash out in anger and frustration and many of the black leaders that we've been speaking about this entire movement are now split along ideological lines King was the leader that had brought them this far and now um, in the 1968 election that you referenced the constituency that was supporting the civil rights movement is able to be exploited and divided that many white blue-collar voters are frustrated with civil rights because of the perceived perception of it bringing about this violence and they want someone to come into place that is going to put things back in order, put things back into a control that they are comfortable with, rather than all the violence and the riots.
1: And also, you have to understand the conspiratorial nature of what's happening in the 60s to kind of understand why people are going to riot in response to MLK. Not only, you know, the death of MLK was pretty much the death of hope, you could say, in the civil rights movement, but, you know, in 65, you have Malcolm X being assassinated. You have... Uh, you have several cases of police brutality throughout the nation and you have a, you have a, a, a very much aggressive leader that's making strides for the black community and all of a sudden now he is being assassinated. It won't take much for a black community who is already um, disenfranchised, oppressed to assume or start to question whether or not this was orchestrated or this was an attempt. So we have to also put that into context. Um, The legacy of King will go down in history as being, um, obviously, as we talked about, lionized. It will be idolized, especially by um, the white community, as being, again, moderation. But we also know something about memory and history. The further away we are, the more uh, we romanticize things, especially when we talk about the Civil War and whatnot. So this will be the same for Martha the King. I will leave off this podcast with a few things. One, we have a tendency to lionize Martin Luther King. And for that, we kind of get spellbound uh, with his achievements, which is worthy of being idolized. However, like all historical figures, he was a human being.
0: You know, all of us are flawed. And one of the things, like you said, is if we look back at King as he was perfect, he did nothing wrong. Everything he did was wonderful. who, Who of us can achieve that? You know what I mean? It it disassociates us from being part of movements like this. Really, he was a regular person just like you and I, but he stood up for what he believed in and took action. And he did what he thought was necessary, what he thought was best. Was he perfect? No. Was he a flawed man? Yes.
1: Historians have long contended that he could have done better to kind of create more channels of communication between more militant groups of, of, of people within the black community. And kind of dictate or provide more leadership for these elements rather than ignore them. A second critique of MLK's position was his lack of um, allowing, lifting up women, black women, who Malcolm X has noted was the most oppressed person in this country, even below black men. So, you know, I don't know if you've seen the movie Selma. But in that movie, it makes great um, reference to his infidelity with his wife. So again, we we can understand and ascertain that there's always something more that one can do. But we can't put people in these dichotomized uh, categorizations of either good, bad. There's a lot of gray going on here.
0: It's not as simple as, no pun intended, black and white. We need to look at the world as you say. In, in, in shades of gray and, and appreciate everyone and everything for its new nuance instead of searching for a simple answer for everything. Okay. So we'll finish up the rest of the eight three notes in a separate podcast, but I uh, hope you enjoyed listening. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.